Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. And if you have a Bible and you don't know where it's at, or you don't have a Bible and you don't know where it's at, or you do know where it's at, don't worry, it's going to be up on screen in just a moment. But with technology nowadays, you should have, like, a Bible app. I mean, there's, I think they're free. There's no excuse, you smartphone owners. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4. And our, our text this morning starts in verse 4. Um, but I'm just going to start in verse 1. And, um, and then we'll just kind of drop in at verse 4 when I get there. Galatians chapter 4, we'll read uh, through verse 8. Sorry, back up. I'm going to start in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this holy word. Illuminate our hearts now, we pray, uh, here in the book of Galatians. And Lord, um, let us glean the wisdom and power of this word this morning. As we end this year and begin a new year, Father, we pray that you would lift our hearts up in the knowledge of you through your son Jesus and why it matters, why Christianity matters, why Jesus matters, why the gospel matters. Help us, Lord God, this morning. Let us leave this place different and changed than the way we came in. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I just read a passage about being adopted, being called sons. And women, I'll get to it in a minute, don't worry. That does not an exclusion of females. Um, but we might want to ask the question, what does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a son? Now, the answer to that question depends in large part on who is doing the fathering. So different sons have different experiences based on who their father is. Um, Growing up, I grew up um, in Los Angeles in the inner city, very blue-collar neighborhood and family, and most of my friends didn't have fathers. So if I can just share a little bit of my testimony this morning... I've been here now two and a half years at West County. I don't know that I've ever done this from the, from the pulpit, um, but I wanted to share a little bit just about my own experience as a son and a father. Um, I kind of grew up on the streets and um, grew up with a mother and a father at home, but my father was aloof. He was largely absent. My parents were married in the late 1960s, and they were pretty squeaky clean for the first, I don't know, seven or eight years. I was born in 1974. And my father was ordained as a minister the year I was born, but something happened in the first couple years of my life. I think my father fell into a depression, and he started to drink. And he started to drink heavily. And so from the time I was four years old onward, 
Um, I had a father. I knew my father loved me, but we just weren't connected. He was there, but he wasn't present. And so by the time I hit 9, 10, 11 years old in Los Angeles, kind of growing up on the streets, not realizing that I was looking for family, I started to get in trouble and got linked up with, with a, a local gang in my area. And this is in the 1980s when the gang scene in Los Angeles was at its zenith. So you've seen rap videos and movies and all these things that came out of that period of time in Los Angeles in the 1980s, and I lived right in the middle of it. And I was a white kid, but living in a Hispanic neighborhood where there was a really old Hispanic gang, and I got wrapped up in that life, and it really wreaked havoc with me, but there was something that I found in the gang that I, looking back in retrospect, I didn't have at home. And I was in and out of correctional facilities, and I was always around other young boys who um, didn't have fathers. And so in some way, I was privileged, even though I had a father, but he wasn't present. But most of my, most of my friends didn't have fathers. And I was uh, in and out of juvenile hall with kids who grew up in the foster system, and they never knew their fathers. In fact, many of them had no parents at all. They were wards of the state of California. And so they just bounced from institution to institution. And even though I was going through a really rough time in my life, um, and trying to make sense of everything I was going through, I recognized that they had it a lot worse than I did. So spent a lot of time on the streets, in and out of correctional facilities, most of my teenage years, and um, ultimately joined a gang. And it was in retrospect, later on, as I became an adult, and it took a lot of years to get that behavior out of me, the way I walked and talked, being a part of a gang, in and out of correctional facilities, um, and even being exposed to a, a world of, of drugs and crime and those types of things, it, it wasn't until later, maybe in my mid-20s, that I was able to process that everything that kind of happened, I could trace back to a lack of connection with my father. Now, that's not a unique story um, for me. A lot of people have stories like that. I don't know. Maybe some in here do. Maybe some in here don't. But years later... I look back and recognize that, that failure to connect with my father as a chief root cause of not only the instability in our home, because my dad's drinking for all those years, um, and by the way, I have a permission from my parents to tell this story. I wanted to ask their permission before I talked about the intimate details of our family life, because things like that are not things you broadcast or want a lot of people to know, but it's been a long time. And so it caused instability in our home for a lot of years. It wasn't just my dad drinking. He worked for himself. He was gone most of the day, and afterwards he'd be at bars until 11 or 12 at night, and my mom was always crying. So my entire childhood was one of remembering my father gone and my mom in tears for at least a decade or longer. And, um, and that was a part of my childhood, that instability, kind of a failure to launch as a kid. I was involved in sports but never excelled because there was no one in the stands ever cheering for me. I never went to a ball game with my dad, never took me to get a haircut, never saw a movie with my dad. I mean, these are this kind of this blank slate of childhood that a kid should experience and should be able to look back and say, I remember when my dad took me here and we went there and we saw a ball game, we did this. I don't have any of those memories at all until I hit about 16 years old and my dad, um, which is too much to tell this morning, but through a lot of a lot of events and God's hand in our life, my mom praying fervently for our family, things changed and my dad stepped in right around when I was 16 or 17 years old. And the moment my dad stepped into my life, everything changed. Again, he was 
present, but he wasn't really present. He was aloof for most of my childhood. And the moment he kind of took on an active role in my life, or more active than I was used to, everything really changed. Well, this morning we just read from Galatians chapter 4 about God sending his son into the world born of a woman. And one of the dimensions, uh, or a dimension about the birth of Christ that we don't pick up on in our traditional readings of the Christmas story, so we just had four Sundays of Advent Sundays where we've talked about Christ and his coming into the world, and one of the things we usually don't talk about or pick up on is how Jesus makes it possible for us to be the children of God. How Jesus makes it possible for us to know God, not just about God, but know God as a loving father. And there's a big difference. Because you can read about what people think about God in books. People who don't even believe in God have opinions about what God would be if there was a God. And so... Through Jesus, though, we don't just know about God, but we come to know God in an intimate way as a loving father. And that's a big difference. That's meaningful. And that's what makes the coming of Christ, Jesus, into the world such a powerful and life-changing event is that we come to know God as our father. Now, Galatians chapter 4 that we just read is one of several passages that pick up on this key theme in the New Testament, the idea of salvation as membership in the family of God. So this idea of of salvation, God saving us, meaning and being equated with membership in God's family. Maybe we don't always think about God that way or a relationship with God that way, but that's essentially one of the key themes of the New Testament. It's what makes the New Testament new in every way, that men and women are now able to call God as Father. Now, you might be thinking, well, hasn't that always been the case? Didn't the Old Testament believers think of themselves that way, as God's children? Well, the answer is kind of, but not really. Israel, which was the nation of the Jews, God's chosen people, Uh, were referred to corporately as God's son. So there are places in the Old Testament where God says, I have called my son out of Egypt, speaking about the nation as a whole. But individual Israelites would not say, I'm a child of God, God is my father. There was was a, a, a distance they had. God was transcendent and holy and powerful and great, but they didn't think of themselves individually in that sort of intimate familial relationship. In some vague, uh, abstract sense, God was the father of all creation, but they didn't think of themselves that way. I'm a child of God. God is my father. And for good reason. Because the relationship with God was restricted by certain factors. Restricted by certain factors. You could say that God was somewhat aloof. Aloof has a negative connotation, but I don't know that there's a better way to describe Uh, the restricted relationship God had with his people in the Old Testament. And it's not that God wasn't present and caring and providing for his people. He absolutely was. But um, Israel's covenant relationship with him, so the people of God, the Jews, the Israelites, the covenant relationship they had with God was not mature. Okay? 
And in verse 1, Paul says here in Galatians 4, he says that an heir, when he's a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, because he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So if you can look at the people of God like uh, an heir but a child. So uh, the rights to all of the father's riches and blessings and all of his possessions, but because they're underage, they're minors, they don't have all the privileges of their inheritance yet. And listen to what John Stott says. It's up on our screen. John Stott, the great theologian, he says, let us picture a boy who is the heir to a great estate. One day it will all be his. Indeed, it is already his by promise, but not yet in experience because he's still a child. During his minority, although he is lord of all the estate by title, yet he is no better off than a slave. He is put under guardians and trustees who act as the controllers of his person and property. They order him about, direct, and discipline him. He's under restraint. He has no liberty because he is, because even though he's the heir, in fact, the Lord, but while he's a child, he is no better than a slave. Moreover, he will remain in this bondage until the date set by his father. And so the idea that Paul is communicating to us through Galatians chapter 4 is that before Christ came, we were under the law. The law was our guardian. Now, if you don't know what the law is, what are you you talking about, the law? We're talking about the law, the the commandments that God gave to Moses uh, to instruct them how they should live. So the law was a guide telling them how they should live. The the, The law was a transcript of God's moral character. When we read the law, thou shalt not commit murder, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, all of these things. This is a transcript of what God values. But it also reveals our sins to us because as we look at God's law and we fall short of God's law, we recognize that we're sinners, that God's rules are standards for humanity we often fall short of. And so before Christ came, we were under the law. The law was our guardian, keeping us until we received, like a child who is an heir, the promised inheritance. And so this kind of spiritual childhood of ours was a sort of bondage. And he goes on to say in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul is not always easy to understand. (laughs) Um, In fact, that's why it requires us to sermonize, to explain some of these things. But these things are important for us. And this is where it gets tricky because when we think about being in bondage or a slave to the law, we think, well, wait a minute, didn't? God give the law? Didn't the law come from God? Was the law then evil? Was it a design of of Satan? Well, it would seem that a father placing his children under the care of a guardian is a benevolent act, right? Um, When you're gone, you have babysitters watch your kids. You don't leave them to themselves. And in a great estate, a person has tutors and mentors and guardians over their children. Sure, it's a loving act. So what gives? Well, again, let's turn to John Stott. Um, And it says, um, what Paul means is that the devil took this good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. Just as during a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways 
which his father never intended. So the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ, but Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. And so this really nuanced argument in the book of Galatians, here what we're supposed to see is how God's people were made sons, but first we're supposed to see that um, their life under the law was a type of bondage. And this helps us understand the statement in verse 4, when we first read through our passage this morning, this statement, but when the fullness of time had come, right? When the fullness of time had come, and so this idea of fullness of time 13 centuries before Christ, the law was given on Mount Sinai with Moses. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, you kind of know the story, right? God gives the law to Moses, the tablets, which are a summary of all of those commands. Moses comes, Charlton Heston, comes down the mountain, and he's got the tablets, right? The Ten Commandments, God gives the law. And that was 13 centuries, 1,300 years before Christ came. And during that whole time, God's people are languishing under the despair they feel as they see themselves falling short over and over and over again. I don't know about you this morning, but I certainly at times have felt a sense of despair over my imperfections, over the ways that I fall short of of being what God wants me to be, of loving my neighbor, of treating people with compassion, times where I've despaired under the crushing weight and sometimes guilt of my own sins. And God's people languished for 1,300 years, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, under the law. And that's how much time had passed they, to think on their sins and to long for some freedom. So um, wrestling with our sins, despairing over sins and wanting to be free from them. I think those are feelings that we can all resonate with. Um, When we wrestle with habitual sins, we may know God's forgiving, but there's this weight on us because it alienates us, and we know that. We feel that sense of alienation, not because God is pushing us away, but because we don't feel this openness to come to God. And that's what sin does. That's why sin is so, so, it wreaks so much havoc in our lives, Because when we engage in sin, especially habitual sins, and we continue to sin even though we know certain things are wrong, we don't realize over over time we, we start to be hunched over with the burden and bondage of it. It's an emotional weight. It's a spiritual and emotional weight that's on us. Now, unbelievers don't understand this weight on their shoulders as despair over their sins. So one of the things we want to say this morning is that For those of us who know the Bible, we know God's word, we know God's commands, we know where we fall short, we feel this crushing weight. There are a lot of people who are unfamiliar. In fact, we're living at a time right now in our nation 
where we could call, we could call our culture a post-Christian culture. I remember a few years ago, my daughter brought a friend home from school, and we were just talking, and I said, well, you know, like Moses, and they said, who? And I was shocked to realize that, you know, the average, well, it depends what part of the country, but a lot of teenagers nowadays or people in their 20s, they don't know who Moses is. They don't know the story of Noah. They don't know those things. And so we're living in a post-Christian culture where people don't understand this weight that they feel to be a burden of sin, especially today, increasingly in these days. And so what ends up happening is people end up interpreting this weight of sin as sort of low self-esteem. And so their answer, of course, if you just think you have low self-esteem, I shouldn't be so hard on myself, I need to give myself a little breathing room, well then the answer isn't God, but maybe just some self-help. Of course, enter the proliferation of self-help books you know, across the board, uh, the New York Times bestseller list. In fact, one comes out, it seems like, weekly. And every single week and month and year, there's a new book on how to help yourself. And the self-help mentality says, I don't really need God. I just need to feel better about myself because I'm okay. And you're okay. And it's really, in the end, this kind of um, self-absorption, looking within for help, it's kind of a self-deification. Whatever problems I got myself into, I can get myself out of. If I feel bad about myself, I just need to remind myself that everything is fine. Well, God's people knew the answer couldn't be found within. They knew the law. They knew God's commands. They knew the holy character of a perfectly righteous and holy God. And they knew that it wasn't just a matter of saying, you know, you're going to have a good day today. You're going to be better. Everything's going to be fine. They recognized that there was something systemic in human nature, this sin problem, that simply just could not be fixed by ourselves. And so there's this bondage for all these centuries, like minors, like a minor that we talked about, abused by a guardian. But finally, the date set by the father, and this is what Paul is saying in these passages of scripture here, that the date set by the father when the children should attain their maturity and be freed from their guardianship under the law and inherit the promise of their inheritance, finally came. Verse 4, But God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Long centuries passed, 1,300 years, God's people laboring and languishing under the weight of, and burden of their own sins, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, the same law, the crushing weight of guilt when we recognize that we fall short of God's perfect commands, that same law, Jesus Christ was born into and under that law and under that burden also. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, what does all that mean? It means that Jesus cleared the way for us to have full family rights. Because in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. In Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. As I was thinking through this passage this week, I was thinking about, it'd be like if a man was with his son at a playground and saw a lonely boy on the other side playing by himself and told his son, 
go make friends with him and ask him if he wants to play with us because he's all alone. And then ask him if he wants to come over and hang out with us and have dinner with us and play with us at the house and enjoy us and enjoy our time together. And the idea is from the very beginning, the father destined us to be his children by sending Jesus to sort of brother us. In fact, that's a biblical concept. Jesus is, in some sense, our big brother. He brothers us. He comes not only to die for us, but to to be a brother to us and welcome us into the family of God. And this was God's purpose all along, that we might know him as our father. We were almost like orphans before Jesus came along, spiritually at least. And what Jesus does is he comes up to us on the lonely side of the playground and says, hey, come over and hang out with me and my father. And verse 6 to 7 really capture this idea. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's a weird word, Abba. In the Middle East today, in Israel, you can hear Jews calling their father Abba to this day. Um, and they call their mother Ima. Father is Abba, mother is Ima. And it's actually a very shortened way of saying father in Aramaic. It's the word that Jesus himself used in intimate prayer to God. When he prayed to the father, he said Abba. And the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible renders it father, dear father. Uh, John Stott, one last time, says, Thus, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have the actual experience of it. And so it's one thing to know God in some abstract sense that he's your father, but it's entirely another experience, another thing to experience it in your heart and in your mind and your emotions, experience God's fatherly love. That may be the biggest obstacle to belief in God, is that for all the information that's out there, the Bible and all these books written about the Bible and theology and all these things, people know about God but haven't experienced him because you cannot really fully experience him apart from Jesus Christ, his son who welcomes us into the family. When my father entered my life meaningfully, in a meaningful way, everything about my life changed. Not just my relationship with him, but the way I even viewed myself. My father was actually a good man with lots of things to teach me. And... I recognized quickly that I wanted to be like him. God redeemed that relationship between us. It was actually because of my dad that I went into the ministry. I was always his son, but for a large part of my childhood, it just didn't feel like it. And I remember um, one day when I was 16, I said that right around that time, God entered my life in a powerful way. I was in trouble as a teenager. I got in a lot of trouble. Well, one night I stayed out until... About 5 a.m., I would do this regularly. 
And up until this point, my dad was pretty passive, but I came home one morning at 5 a.m. from hanging out. And in those days, you couldn't get a, get a hold of your kids by calling them up on the smartphone. There was no flip phones back, back then. There were no, you know, you couldn't get a hold of your, uh, of your family and your loved ones. And so my dad waited up for me. And I walked in the house, you know, I did one of these, you know, at 5 a.m. And I looked, and my dad was sitting there wide awake, fully dressed with a cup of coffee at 5 a.m. He had been up all night waiting for me. Been up all night. And he was furious, but he was measured and controlled. And I kind of froze, and he said, you're not going to bed. You're going to sit in this chair and stay up all day like I have done all night for you. <laughs> and it was the first time my dad ever really threw his weight around. He was a big guy, six foot three, you know, 270 pounds, a, a size 15 shoe. He's just a big man, so I was intimidated. But in that moment, I felt my dad's love in a way I never had felt before. And from that day forward, my dad was present. Something had changed in his heart and in his mind, and he was just present from that day forward. In fact, he became like the best father ever. And um, it was a powerful, when I look back on it, it was a powerful, powerful uh, comparison to this passage of Scripture where my dad was there, but I didn't experience his fatherly love fully in the way that it was meant to be until that moment where things changed. Well, when Jesus came into the world, he made it possible for us to experience the Father's love as members of God's own family in a way that was not possible before. Sinclair Ferguson says, the knowledge that the Father has bestowed his love on us so that we are called children of the living God will, over time, prove to be the solvent in which our fears, mistrust, and suspicion of God, as well as our sense of distance from him, will eventually dissolve. And when that happens, we enter into a richer experience of confidence and assurance as the children of our Father in heaven. If this morning you don't feel that intimate, familial connection with God, give him some time. Draw closer to him through Christ. Draw closer to him through his word. Draw closer to him in the knowledge that he loves you as his child and has made that possible through Jesus. Let's pray.